Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. I'm Rachel Woody, here with Rich Schmidt, and we're here with the A to Z team located here at Rex Hill. And in order, left to right, we have Bill and Deborah Hatcher, and then we have Sam Tannehill and Cheryl Francis. And our first question for you guys is, why wine? Like I said earlier, I wasn't paying attention on career day. <laughs> for me, it was more about Oregon than about wine. We were here only one day. I tasted Oregon Pinot Noir across the street. It wasn't Chehalem then, it was Veritas, and it was love at first taste. Mm -hmm. uh, we met some people that very night, went back to St. Louis, sold our stuff, uh, sold our house, three-story, 100-year-old home that we just refurbished, sold what we could from inside of it, put the rest in storage, sold two cars, gave a car to my brother, bought a little um, used Volvo station wagon, put the German Shepherd puppy in our first computer, a big Macintosh in, and came back, and three weeks later worked Harvest, the year that Rex Hill opened the tasting room in 1985. But it was always about the community, the beauty of the place. It was definitely about the deliciousness of the wine, but it was a combo. It wasn't about only the business. It was about um, an amazingly small community at that time that was very cohesive, even though geographically spread out. And it was about families. We didn't have children then, although we'd been together 19 years, uh, but we soon did thereafter because kids were involved in everything. So to me it was the place and the community as well as the quality of the wine that knocked me out. Top that, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it certainly wasn't, uh, it wasn't Oregon that first got me into wine. I, um, I had, uh, was in college and majoring in East Asian studies and planning to go to business in, in school in Virginia. Then after graduation, I followed a, a girlfriend out to LA where she was finishing up UCLA, not, not Cheryl, but uh, someone else. And, uh, and uh, I had been working at one, a wine store in San Francisco growing up um, during college, going back just to get cheap beer and, and summer money and whatnot. And I happened to get a job at a wine store in Los Angeles called Wally's, which is one of the premier wine shops, not only in Los Angeles, but the West Coast. And I, I at some point um, during that couple years that I was there, I fell out of love with my girlfriend. She left and fell in love with wine. I decided to stay and, as my dad said at that point, throw away all my education. Um, and, and I knew I wanted to do something in wine, but I didn't know what I really wanted to do. And one night, I, I happened to have dinner with guy named Andre Chelichev, who's sort of the founder of um, California, one, one of the founders of California wine industry, and certainly probably the founder of the Washington wine industry. And it was in celebration of his 80th birthday, and we tasted wines that he had made back to the 50s um, and 60s, and I had my birth year in you know, the 70s, and, and he was talking not about the bricks or the TA or the PH, but he was talking about his experiences and his emotions and the people that he met, and what, during each vintage, and what 
each vintage and each wine really represented to him. And at that night, I came home and told my roommates I want to be a winemaker. And as a matter of fact, I still have that menu from that night that he signed to me, and it's hanging on my my wall in uh, my office. And I, after that, um, it was it was during the time of the LA riots, and I and decided I had enough of LA. Bought a one-way ticket to Thailand, but uh, ended up picking grapes in Oregon, or excuse me, in um, France for five or six weeks where I was invited then to stay for a year and then another year and that turned into a winemaking degree at the University of Dijon. And that was when I, I fell in love with Oregon in 1994 when I came here for the International Pinot Noir Celebration to represent the winery that I was working at and decided I, I wanted to be in Oregon within uh, two years. And it took me uh, a year. I got up here sort of uh, late harvest in 1995. Speaking the truth. <laughs> um, sure it was a new girlfriend. Yeah. <laughs> My story a little bit different. Um, I was a biology major and I moved to Oregon from Los Angeles to go to Lewis and Clark, was a biology major there, uh, moved to Spain after I graduated from college and you know had one of those moments of what am I gonna do what do I love and I was on a road trip and um, on my way back alone from uh, the south of Spain back up to Madrid and started driving through some vineyards stopped talked to some people and the whole, you know, I'd started playing around with, okay, what are my strengths? I'm a biology major. I could work in a lab. I could do a harvest. I could do all of this. And so I decided then um, I was going to leave Europe for the moment, come back to Oregon. And I came back to Oregon, and I pretty much knocked on everybody's door in the valley and said, I have a biology degree. I'm sure I can do something. I'll work for you. And I got hired in a lab. Um, actually across the street at Veritas. Um, the winery was owned by a doctor and he loved the fact that I had a degree, a science degree, and I went in and um, started working then and within six months, uh, excuse me, I had done another vintage in New Zealand and then went back to France, worked a year in France, and back to New Zealand, and then back to um, back to Oregon. and. It was something, wine was something my family always loved. It was sort of a place that my dad um, and I always intersected and he loved to, I loved the history of it and we would spend a lot of time in his wine cellar and talk about bottles and regions and where things came from and all of that and that was always far in the background but uh, once I realized there was the science side to it and that and it was in my own backyard in Oregon, I decided to come back up here and see what I can do. I, I think that's interesting that Cheryl said, I, I realize I answered your question, not the why, but the, the how, you know, how I got here. And I think the why is probably equally important that, you know, <laughs> Bill, you having, you having fun over there, Bill? <laughs> um, 
I, I, I think that the, the why was, it was part because of Andre Chelichap. My mom's an artist, but I, I can't paint. I, I always wanted to play the guitar and never really took the trouble to learn and love music and whatnot. But I think that wine is a medium that you can work in that's a sort of a blend of craft and art. And that it also, especially here in Oregon, marks a, a very particular um, year. Each vintage is different. And so to be able to, to um, really participate in something like that I think is a really special gift. Um, not, not a gift that I have, but a gift to me. And to be able to create something that's a combination of nature and art and a craft and to be able to have people share that at a table and have it represent something different to them um, and share a region but also a time in your life and um, and also a whole lot of other things and friendship at a table is that's a that's a pretty unique thing to be able to do in the world and it's pretty cool and I think that's sort of the more the why for me yeah and growing up in Los Angeles it wasn't until I moved to Oregon that I realized oh seasons really do exist <laughs> this is why they call it harvest wow there's one time of year and Thanksgiving and I mean, that struck me hard moving to Oregon from a place that you could have strawberries that all year round mm -hmm. and they didn't taste very good. So, you know, really being in Oregon and realizing um, the cycle of the year in a much um, richer and deeper way was impressed upon me, you know, even as a 21 year old or a 20 year old. So another reason that wine was so interesting and as Sam said just the blend of all of that and capturing a year in a bottle was something that was unique and a pretty amazing thing to do. Historically we have an intricate connection across the street with Veritas. Mm -hmm. so when Deb and I came in 85 we were the first harvest there and then I was eventually hired by the Druin family to develop their business um, in Oregon. The first image of Druin was done across the street at Veritas in 1988. Yeah. Cheryl's there, and then Michael, our winemaker, worked with Cheryl, but it became Shailam over there. So that's true. They've all wound on this hillside for uh, a long time. And yours was 80. But what year were you over there? Your first year? Uh, 85. 85. 85 for Veritas. The DDO rented that new back building in 88. Cut. I don't think it's new any longer. No, yeah, not, not <laughs> close. Uh, yeah, I continued to work there after Harvest. Bill went on to do other things, but I really was, um, I, I, I sometimes say, we, we don't need people like I was with grapes in your eyes. You know, I just was in love with everything to do about it. I should have told John House and I had a biology degree too and maybe I would have had a different career, but no, I didn't open my mouth about that apparently. Um, but, but falling in love with wine, this was very specific and it was in love, but growing up in Detroit, we didn't drink wine. My parents, I grew up in the 50s, they, they had cocktail hour, you know, it wasn't about wine at all. I discovered wine when I learned how to cook from an Italian. That was, uh, of course, then you had to have wine with the meals, and um, those were fun times, and learned how important 
the synergy is between wine and food. They just make food come alive and sing and sparkle and um, wine sharing a bottle of wine and all of the things Sam says about reminiscing about what were you doing in that year when those grapes were growing and it's only once a year you get to have that opportunity that really was fun and we never stopped enjoying wine with our meals from that point on but uh, Oregon Pinot Noir was a, a different thing we hadn't had enough money or knowledge, I suppose, to even seek out Burgundies, really. So we didn't understand uh, about this grape that, it, that you, you watch out, you'll fall in love with it. Mm -hmm. And uh, Burgundies weren't as abundant then in the United States and they were expensive. So we hadn't explored that. We drank things like Barolos, Italian wines and um, Bordeaux's. So ex experiencing Oregon Pinot Noir was a shock. It was revelatory. It was accessible even when young. It was mercurial. It was exciting and delicious and um, took my enjoyment of wine to a whole different level. I think that's true. I, I, I came back from France in 1995 in the summer. I decided it was time to leave and, and um, was working for a fellow named Ted Lemon who has a winery down in California called Litteri and Pinot Noirs and Chardonnays and he also was a consultant and he said well I'm consulting on this Oregon project that's sort of new but I can't really tell you about it it's a little, little bit of a secret and I said okay and so I, I made a stop in Jackson Hole Wyoming where I, my family had had a cabin for a long time but it sold it when I was 10 but it continued to go up there and I was living in my friend uh, Dennis's backyard in a tent and Dennis was the he was a um, the the a wine manager wine store manager for a store called Dornan's and Dornan's is sort of this complex of a chuck wagon and a wine store and a bar and other things and it's right on the in Moose Wyoming right on the other side of the Teton so I was working in this wine store and you look out and the Tetons are right there and one night at a party Dennis said uh, here I want you to try this wine and he pulled it out and it was blind and he poured it around and I you know just come off of two years in Burgundy and tasting a lot of Burgundy and whatnot and I tried the wine I said that's the best domestic Pinot Noir I've ever had in my life and it ended up being a, uh, a 1993 archery summit premier cuvee it was the first release from archery summit and the it story should be it's veritas yeah i know i know, <laughs> I know. Sorry. I think that needs to be but, changed. But Dornan's, <laughs> Dornan's got that one six-pack um, of wine for all of Wyoming. They were the only store to receive this, mm -hmm. the, the one six-pack. It was a tremendous wine store. Anyway, when I got to um, Napa and started working for Ted, Ted said, oh, well, you know, the project I'm consulting on in Oregon is Archery Summit. Um, so it was a nice uh, synergy there. And I had met Gary Andrus, who was the owner, or well, the general manager owner of Archery Summit in 1993 in Burgundy. Um, when I was working at the at the domain, he came by to taste and he offered me a job um, to do harvest. And I said, no, 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 I'm, I'm going to work here in Burgundy. So I don't know. I like like the Veritas and the Shehalem and the Domain Drew and it, it all. It was it was a really small industry. I mean, I, I realized it was a little bit bigger at that point from you know the 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 start start from the early 70s, but at the same time it was pretty small and a pretty small circle and the and the circle of people that make. Um, that made at that time and still do make great Pinot Noir around the world is still pretty small, but it was even smaller at that. At yeah, that, that circle is still pretty tight between the people in New Zealand and Burgundy and Oregon. That same group sort of is still um, 
I don't know. Again, like you said, not the founding group in the 70s, but is sort of a, a strong community from that early 90s. Well, as late as 97, I saw a photo the other day of pretty much the whole wine industry from the mix. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you can get everybody in that photo in front of the restaurant today. Field. <laughs> oh, the other small thing is also when I when I worked when I went to work for Archery Summit in Gary, Archery Summit was in between Bill and Deb's house and Domain Druin, oh, yeah. and and <laughs> and Bill and Gary were mortal enemies at that point. I mean, wouldn't wouldn't talk to each other other than screaming at the phone, screaming at each other on the phone, and and Can leaving messages. That <laughs> so it was a, yeah, it was a. Um, Sam was told not to talk to the enemy. Couldn't so. talk to the enemy. We couldn't buy Domain Druin. <laughs> wine at Archery Summit. Yeah, it so was. it took a long time before we all met. And I did this, and I was completely unprovoked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Bill, I'd like to hear from you a little bit on how you fell in love with Oregon Pinot Noir, a little bit of why wine, because we may have skipped over you. Well, it, he was actually being flipped, so we yeah. can move on. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, Dibs and my story was really the same, and that's why I was kind of flipped with that, because I was going to let her uh, tell a story. There's really not much different to it. Um, I had a business background before this. Um, originally, I was an art history major and then master's degree in English writing poetry and decided I wanted to eat, so I got an MBA and, and had a uh, corporate career that only had one thing in common, as I did like working for $10 billion corporations and they didn't like me working for them. So it was really, for me, it was a matter of, I've got to do something else. And, you know, like so many, so many of the early stories of wine, I think people get wine now, more people are going to Davis, getting trained, saying this is my career path, this is what I want to do. But, I mean, even for the four, all four of us, we just fell into it. And if you go back to the, the founders of the industry, they all fell into it. It's just people came, and there was a little bit of a Chautauqua here. And so when we came and someone said, here, work harvest, and we went back to St. Louis and sold it, and said, okay, let's try this. And frankly, I didn't think I'd ever be in the wine business. You know, I looked at it, I said, I don't have capital to do this, and I don't know how to make wine. Mm -hmm. And you know, in those days, I, would, I often said, I'm surprised how many people have been doing it for a long time and haven't figured out either one of those things. Um, but I got involved in venture capital startups, and I was doing consulting, and it just happened that Druin came in, and they needed someone to do the development study, and I was the, the, the business consultant that was available. So I kind of fell into it in, in a back way. Now, I'm very lucky I did, because it, uh, you know, beats having a real job. I mean, you know, even though some days around here it's a real job. Um, but, and I think that, again, if you, you ask people, you know, the path wasn't, they woke up one morning and said, ah, wine, I would love yeah, you, know, like, you, know, you have a lot of people getting into it today who don't have quite enough money for a baseball team. Mm -hmm. And they have a really nice wine cellar, so their friends say, you should have a $10 million winery, you know. And, but that is, um, I love wine, so I'll have a winery you know, proposition. But back then, I don't think anybody was saying, um, was really coming at, when, but once we got into it, and then 
it started to, you know, it was, it was like a flower. It started to bloom and started to unfold, and then we, um, we came immersed in it, and there was really nothing else you wanted to do. Mm -hmm. So didn't David let go to Davis? He did. He wanted to be a dentist first, but he'd left Utah to, to go to Davis and, and, and shifted yep. his focus, and they then said he couldn't make wine here. I ended up working for David in those early years. I was working at Veritas, and then Nick asked me if I'd work at Nick's Italian Cafe. I had never worked in a restaurant, so I started as a prep cook and washed dishes and was a waitress. It was a great experience. I was in my mid-30s and had degrees and, and careers, but I had never worked in a restaurant, and it was the end of its centricity as the the gathering place for winemakers in in the community and there weren't very many. I think there were maybe 12 wineries in Yamhill County when we came, maybe eight. There weren't very many. Um, and people would show up there so they'd have tastings. In the, in the early industry people sold anything they could so they hadn't kept cellars and when a wine writer would come and want to taste through different vintages they would have to go to Nick's because um, he was the only one who had those old vintages so it was really a central place and I got to know David Lett there uh, actually Bill and I and John Thomas had come asked permission to come in on a Saturday morning after there'd been a retrospective of it of one of Irie's tastings, um, including the famous 75 South Block Reserve. And so we sat there at the, in the mess um, at the bar in Nixon, tasted through. We were very serious. We're taking notes. It's just a little dregs. There was only one bottle empty. That was the South Block. I had, I had tasted it subsequently several times, but then to thank Nick, we decided we'd clean up the restaurant. And so we vacuumed and cleaned, and Nick asked me to do prep for the soup and said I knew my way around a knife. That's how he, that's how he hired me, but because we were there because of David Lett. And then eventually David hired me. He called me his first employee. That wasn't true, but I was the first person he trusted in the offices. I set up his new office and his systems and that was very private for him so um, it was nice to be trusted and I also worked in the cellar and that was the year that Veronique Druin came over to do her assage. You had to do uh, an apprenticeship a hundred kilometers from your home, so Oregon qualified. And she did one-third of her time with uh, Bethel Heights, one-third with Irie, and one-third with Adelsheim. So I got to know her and worked with her. We'd sit outside and eat, eat a cookie every day. It was, um, it was fun. She's a great gal. And so subsequently got to know her parents a little bit and then when they bought the property the following year um, both David's new bill was an MBA, the only MBA hanging around the Red Hills without much to do and asked him if he would uh, <laughs> asked him if he would consider writing a business plan for that 
But that point was a real pivot point, not just because of Druan, but because of why we captured Druan, I think. In 1987, it was the first International Pinot Noir celebration. So when they were pitching that idea, it was actually a businessman in downtown McMinnville who pitched it to a few people, including Nick. I was there when he came in to pitch it. And uh, it was a huge hurdle to think of where would they house this. So I remember it was quite a long discussion and not a done deal that Linfield would allow alcohol on the property even in the summer when no students were there and so that was quite a difference for Linfield College for McMinnville but I think even more importantly Sam and Cheryl were saying how the connection between New Zealand and Burgundy and Oregon is strong I think that's when um, it became uh, more solidified because although it was the first time there was ever a celebration or a festival for one variety that we know of in the world, we didn't say it was Oregon's celebration, Oregon's Pinot Noir thing. We invited people from all over the world for the very first one. And associated with that IPNC right from the get-go was the gathering at Steamboat Inn for winemakers only and um, the price of admission that year was you had to bring a flawed wine. Mm -hmm. The Burgundians were a bit flummoxed because they'd never made one but they did go to the uh, they did go and during those discussions I remember Robert I talked to Robert about Robert Duane about this a number of times it was so shocking to have people with all honesty talking about my god you know what went wrong here what did I do what would you have done and all of that and the, Robert told me that he had never visited his colleagues wineries that's probably true he said that he had never discussed winemaking with his colleagues that was probably true. And he said that he had never tasted his colleagues' wines. I don't believe that for a second, but regardless, he said that. And I think that insular quality of Burgundy, that you have secrets and how you do this that are passed down generations to generations, and that um, that protectiveness, David Lett shared that some, to some degree, that it, it's private, you know, you don't share what you've done. Um, the, that in stark contrast didn't really change the vanguard at the time in Burgundy. It certainly didn't really change Robert's opinions. But the great exciting news was that the young generation was there in force. Veronique Drouin, Dominique Lafon, Christophe Rumier, Patrice Rion. This group went back to Burgundy and started a tasting group that is still meeting to this day. And I believe that Oregon and the IPNC changed winemaking for the better in the world by that sharing of information and openness. So we're still on your first question. Did you bring overnight bags? <laughs> <laughs> we have some sustenance, yes. <laughs> but that's amazing to hear. We had never quite heard that story told before on the influence Oregon had on Burgundy. 
A question for Sam and Cheryl, most specifically. <clears throat> you guys both mentioned uh, a great deal of abroad experience early on in your in your lives and careers, and I'm curious uh, how that influenced what you brought back, and if you f the value you feel you got from working abroad and living abroad early on. Cheryl, you go first. Me? Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Um, Give me a second. I know. Uh, speaking abroad, I just flew in this morning from Southern Oregon, so I'm like <laughs> rearranging, rearranging my thoughts. It's interesting that Deb mentioned that tasting group because when I was in Burgundy, I was working at a winery called Domaine de Larlo, and I actually got to go to that tasting group several times um, when I was working there, and that's where I met Veronique and, and some of the other folks, Christophe Rumier and, and whatnot. I think that um, the greatest gift of working in Burgundy was certainly, uh, you know, and this is sort of trite, but uh, a respect for the authenticity of, you know, the, the French say terroir, um, and, and I hesitate to use that a little bit in the direct French term because if you if you talk to the, the French, at least when I was there, it was really about the soil, it was about the place, and, and I've grown now to believe terroir, to use that, or uniqueness in companies, you know, it's the it's a combination of the soil, the winemaker, the climate, um, the ethos of the place in which the, the grapes are grown and the wine is made. Um, but certainly in Burgundy, there's a, a tremendous respect for where the grapes are grown. So that was that was certainly number one to to have that respect was a was a huge influence on me. Um, I think number two was when in Burgundy, because a lot of the vineyards are, are broken up, not all, but but a lot. The one of the, the first place that I worked was in. Um, I was dropped off. I just traveled around the world for nine months, and I showed up in in Dijon, um, no, in Bone, in the train station. And Jean Pierre came, Dismet came and got me, and he brought me to the winery, then dropped my bag off, and then he drove me out to the vineyard and dropped me off in Romany Saint Vivant to work with uh, with the crew right across from Romany Conti, which is which is a pretty amazing first day. But what what I also began to notice after I spent time there was, um, and this goes back to the land as well, is the, the land where there was conventional farming being done, just the, not, the, not even the land, the, the ground was dead, it was completely dead. And, and on the other side where they were doing biodynamic farming or um, organic or, or whatnot, the soil was, was absolutely alive. And I, and I thought, geez, you know, we have maybe 50 chances in our lives to make great wine, especially in a great vineyard like Romany Saint Vivant, the ground's just absolutely dead. Not not where I was working, but I'm not going to name the winery. And and so that was number two, I think, was that that it goes along with respect for the place. It's how to treat that place. And then I, I think lastly, um, for me, young Pinot Noir is really pretty, but old Pinot Noir is really beautiful. So I set my sights on wanting to. Uh, make a wine that could age and evolve and could become something other than what it was at the beginning. And, and to me, those are sort of the, the real big three takeaways from Burgundy. You know, other than the eating and the drinking and the general lust for life and, and all that and, the, and the, the long dinners and the, you know, taking the time that the French tend to do. My, my father just came back from France, but he lived there for 30 years, so I was fairly familiar with France when, when I got there, um, when I got to Burgundy. And, but it also, it, it also on the, I'm not going to say the negative side, but the amount of tradition that's been codified in law and and not even codified that hangs over a lot of those winemakers heads also spurred me on 
to, I think, incorporate in my DNA creativity and innovation, which has helped me here in the United States. You can't, you know, there's certain things you just can't be creative in France, you know, due to the laws. But there's also that, you know, if you're 19th generation, handed down, 21st generation, Cheryl and I have friends, you know, we all have friends that are 19th or 21st or 22nd generation, father, daughter, father, son. That's a lot of tradition on your shoulders. You know, it's not like that little guy from, I was thinking about Dennis from, uh, what was that movie? Um, with the Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, you know, I want to be a dentist. You know, if you're if you're if you're the <laughs> the, the heir, you're going to be a winemaker, and and you're going to do it this way. And I think that's changing a little bit, but at least when I was there, that that pressure was so intense. And so, um, you know, I took that away. I, Cheryl can. We've got three kids, and you know, I have no expectation or no pressure that they'll should be winemakers. Um, they can, they can do what they want. Or if someone comes to us in the cellar and says, hey, I, I think this is a better way to do this, we'll take a look at it and we'll say, okay, yes, it's a better way. It might not be the way we've always done things, but we're open to that change. And so I think that was a big influence on me as well. A major impetus for drawing <coughs> coming to Oregon was the opportunity to experiment. Absolutely. Yeah. Wine making vineyards that you weren't constrained by how you had to plant, you know, how you how you could make wine, uh, and, and I remember he said that many times. Oh, there's so many things I can I can try to do. Here. Well, I think that there's the challenge in that. The reverse in the challenge is that now with information traveling so quickly around the world, with interns now that don't just go do one or two harvests. I mean, I was in one place for two years. Um, but with interns maybe doing up to four or five harvests a year and traveling around the world, now we have, especially in winemaking and viticulture, this exchange of ideas, which is great because I don't think there's been really a better time in the history of the wine world to have high quality wine for wherever you are in the world. On, on the downside, there's this homogenization of wine that's going on and we, we're losing some of the uniqueness of each region um, because of the, you know, all the yeasts are the same, all the enzymes, all those things, all the ideas in the vineyard are sort of the, the same. So we, we need to be careful as we move forward that we, we use that, a lot of these exchange of ideas, but we also use them to um, not to make wines similar, but to make wines, continue to make wines unique and even find ways to make them more unique from that region and more expressive from that region. Sorry, I went on way too long. Well, no, what you're saying is interesting because there are a lot of, as we started, a lot of strengths of pooling your knowledge, but then, you know, there reaches a point where there's maybe a downside of homogenization. And I feel like we were sort of on the beginning edge of pooling knowledge from everywhere and it was it, yeah and the internet was no, around when, when I mean, um, we didn't have cell phones back then you know i know but, it's amazing to consider but um, it was interesting it's the first time i thought about you sam going to one place landing in the vineyard and seeing the whole growing season where uh my experience was incredibly different that i came in at the end of the growing season and worked a harvest in the new world. It was an old world. So it was about these grapes and how you make wine out of it. And so I had, I got the whole idea of how you make wine without seeing an entire season. And I sort of jumped um, 
with New World winemaking to begin with. So I was in Oregon, my first vintage, 93. It was a smaller vintage, it was cool vintage, um, that, you know, long summer that people weren't expecting to be a really great vintage, but pulled it out in the end. And there were all these New World winemakers, like Steve Dorner had just showed up at Christum, and I met him at a tasting and, you know, would talk to people about where do you go and what do you do and how do you do another vintage? And um, I had the opportunity to go to New Zealand very quickly, and I thought, oh, I can't do this. It's not planned. It's not anything. And my mom, even of all people, she was saying, you know what, when do you get this opportunity? Go. And I was like, okay, I guess I'll go. I've only had a job for a few months, but he has a friend in New Zealand that has a winery there. And so I did that transition really quickly. And again, for me, it's about connection and people and how this all works is this big network. But I met great people who I still know now who have great wineries in New Zealand or in France or wherever, you know, working in Oregon, all around in the Pinot Noir, cool climate world. So doing that and really being able to see the world, I'm visual, I'm not going to remember by drinking a wine and just having the bottle. For me, I need to walk through the vineyard and say, oh, okay. That's Martinborough, that's Marlborough, and up on that ridge, it looks like that. So I was able to get a broad view of the world, and at least New Zealand, <laughs> and winemaking very quickly. So sort of map wines um, around the world. And a big thing in New Zealand at the time, and is probably still a big thing, is all of these people who had been in Australia and been in Europe and you know, you're on this small island where you're not getting a lot of imported wines. And there's this richness and history in Australia, wines that we were never getting back in the US. And people played these game, this game called options. And there were teams and you would go to intense tasting groups and then you would play this game where you would smell a wine and people would say, okay, is it from the old world or the new world? Is it, you know, these are your three varietals. Is it one of these? What are the vintages? And so just getting into wine, um, I was on a team and we um, went to competitions. The, it was a late vintage and so my first month was doing a lot of tasting and it was interesting seeing the southern hemisphere in depth and those wines and then a lot of um, luckily being with people whose parents ran a winery and were wine geeks for a long time and so I got to sit in on these amazing old champagne tastings and um, Bordeaux tastings and things like that that I maybe wouldn't have gotten the opportunity to do here so traveling and being with um, younger people who were intensely geeky about getting to know wines of the world so I had those opportunities and um, came back to Oregon again. Then I went back to New Zealand because I sort of had my network and um, loved the going back and forth option um, or just having all of that experience. Then some of my friends in New Zealand had gone to um, France at the same time. Anyway, we can talk about this later, but so many different um, weaving 
we all sort of ended up back at the same place. I took a job um, the next year in Burgundy that was right next door to where Sam was. Across the street. Across the street. Uh, which was right down the street from Bill and Deb's friends and from the people at Veritas and all of that. And so um, getting the opportunity to go to Burgundy and again, like Sam said, um, walk through these vineyards and taste wines and be involved in tasting groups. And I spent about six months traveling with a friend. And really, these are wines I never would be able to purchase being a... 23, 24 year old, but we spent a number of months tasting at domains all throughout France and different areas, also in Italy, you know, Alsace, Bordeaux, sorry, not Bordeaux, Alsace, Burgundy, Sancerre, everywhere. And that was an opportunity, and wines I, like the mental map, I would have never had the chance to. Um, to make if I had to buy every single one of those bottles of wine. So I'm rambling. But um, in general, traveling really allowed me to taste wines, look at the vineyard, get out there, hear the story of all of these different people in different places. And I think that is something that, you know, I wouldn't have been able to do unless I were boots on the ground walking around and meeting these people. So I thought that was a pretty amazing opportunity. That's such an important point, Cheryl. The people that were in the industry when we came in 85 had a very, you have a word for it, Bill. I can't think of the word, but but you get this palette. What, you, what is the word? That well, seller palette. Yeah, house palette. That, yeah. That, that we only drank our own wines, and nobody really had the money and and the ways to buy all of these wines from around the world. And although we began to have tastings, many of the tastings were the history of the Oregon wine industry because some of us had come around the same time. Um, I remember taste, our tasting group had John Paul from Cameron and, um, and Rollin Souls, who, uh, these people all just came a uh, little bit after that. Ken Wright came. I mean, it was, it was a group of not the people who had been here in the 70s, so we were trying to educate ourselves. What were these Oregon white, wines like? Did they age? And, and we would then buy some Burgundies for that tasting, but it didn't have the sense of place and people and the map that you're talking yeah. about, Cheryl. So we, we made an effort. But I would say that the, the original people who were here drank their own wines. And then you get that palette that's where you prefer Oregon wines. You just know Oregon wines rather than this broader view that I think without the internet, without cell phones, was was useful, helpful as people came who had this broader experience and brought that to Oregon. Yeah, and it was impossible to do unless you went somewhere went and you places. drove around and you called them up right. and you weren't making appointments online the same way, you know, right. it's long distance phone calls and you're knocking on cellar doors or trying to set up an appointment. And it sounds so ridiculous, it wasn't that long ago, <laughs> yeah it was, but um, 
you know, 20 plus years yeah, ago. 23 years ago. We're born. Right. <laughs> I know. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> uh, anyway. And, um, and the reverse has happened now with Burgundians going out into the world, especially here in Oregon. But at the time that the Druens decided to make wine here, they were the only Burgundians who were currently making Burgundy to make Pinot Noir anywhere else in the world. That was a very risky proposition. What's Where's the win in this for Robert? He does a great job. His, his colleagues in, in Burgundy think, oh great, thanks so much. And he does a lousy job and they're all, I told you so. But today, look how many Burgundians either have something going here or have come to make wine here or exchange. There's It's, it's, it's the reverse now. We went out, but now they're coming here. Yeah, that's true. I think it's all mixed up. You know, you've got Today. Americans in New Zealand, Today. you have Kiwis here, Burgundians here, Americans over in Burgundy. It's just, you know, it's just a, it's once again, it's that fine Pinot Noir, Pinot Noir wine world. You know, it's pretty small. You know, Pinot Noir is not, not a huge chunk of the market it is growing but especially when you get up into the the upper quality end it's a pretty small world and we it's growing but we still know most of the folks well we've had interns from what kenya 15 countries. philippines yeah. Yeah. kenya india india yeah. jamaica trinidad yeah and, and then on our staff now we have we've had two kiwi winemakers we have one and we have a right friend an aussie a french an aussie. And Yamhill used to Too be French. long distance, yeah. right? <laughs> and Yamhill used to be long distance yeah, yeah. for interns. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's exciting. So how did you all meet? What brought you together? Gary. <laughs> I still remember that phone call that started. No, <laughs> I gave you twenty dollars before the meeting. There, there was a great phone call from Bill that, that um, was on, you know, back when they had uh, when you had answering machines that had the, that had the tape, yeah. and that that lasted for a long time at Archery Summit. <laughs> the, the tape was played was several times. In the morning, the bird cannon was loud. <laughs> um, well, Cheryl and I met at Tina's in Dundee in '96. Even though you worked across. Well, we worked across. So, she, so Cheryl arrived in Burgundy a month after I left. Oh. But we knew, we had all these friends in common, and it's a it's a long. It's story. a long story, but friends in common. Like so yeah, this guy this this guy Mike Worsing who owns a vineyard down uh, in New Zealand now called Pyramid Valley Vineyard. Had, I had met another guy, Matt Donaldson, who was one of the owners of Pegasus Bay, where Cheryl was where working. Where I worked in 94. And, and Matt, Matt and I had dinner the last night he was in Burgundy, and he was working across the street from me. And, and he said, well, you got to meet this, this woman, Cheryl. She's great. She worked for us. And I said, fine, whatever. And then um, my friend Mike went down to Australia to work with James Holiday, I think. Yeah. And, and I said, Mike, so if you go to New Zealand, you got to go to this winery, Pegasus Bay. So... Mike rucks up and there's Cheryl during, doing harvest at Pegasus Bay and Mike said, you got to meet this guy Sam and Matt was really drunk and he kept saying, what was it, Sam's a dude! <laughs> <laughs> well everybody kept saying, even the gardener at... Uh, oh, across at, the street at Domaine de Larlo. Yeah, at Rion. I, like I went and had lunch at this little pub. I guess it's Cafe. called a pub. Yeah, <laughs> Cafe. Bistro. Bistro. Thank you. Next to the winery. And I think it was the only restaurant in Primo in the little town. Yeah, that's yeah. true. He was like, oh, I'm the gardener next door. And 
he was trying to practice his English and he's like, oh, you're from America. Do you know Sam? <laughs> <laughs> he's a dude. No, I, I don't know Sam. Oh, Sam worked here. And I was always like, oh, that's funny. No, I don't know Sam. And then I would meet somebody else and they're like, oh, you're what? Do you know Sam? I'm like, America is a big place. Like, but then after yeah. a while it kept being the same guy Sam and then... Well, so I went down to, I, well, hold on, I went down to Napa and you and Liz were coming back up through, I think it was Liz, Burgundy, and yeah. after Burgundy and I had worked for Ted Lemon and I met this guy Blair Walter who's now the winemaker owner at Felton Road in New Zealand and Blair said, oh you should meet this woman Cheryl, she's great, she's, and, and I left to go up to Oregon and I think it was like a two weeks or something after I left Cheryl came up and you guys went to a going away party for Blair, right? Yeah, well, every time I would go back and forth, I would stop in Napa. Blair was a friend from my first harvest, so that's what I mean. There are all these people that knit yeah. everybody together. Yeah, and he said, oh, my friend Sam just moved to Oregon. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. This is an absolute joke. I was like, oh, Sam who was in Burgundy? Yeah, and you were going out with a brewer at the yeah, time. I don't, yeah, that part of the story. Yeah, I was going yeah. out with a brewer. This is a funny story, but um, I went to Salt Lake City where he was just opening up a brew pub and we're sitting there playing darts and I met this new boss of his and he said, oh, my um, stepdad or my, some, it was like stepdad, something like that, um, he owns a winery in Oregon and you're going back to Oregon. It's called Archery Summit. And I was like, now you're going to tell me about this guy, Sam. <laughs> because, was, it, was this 96 or not? And I was like, yeah. you, because a friend, my friend Blair had just said, oh, my friend Sam's working at Archery Summit. And I was like, you're going to tell me about this guy, Sam, right? And he was like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I've never met anybody named Sam. I just know that he owns this winery. And I was like, this guy, Sam, works for him <laughs> that I've heard of. And then my boyfriend at the time was like, who's Sam? I was like, no, it's a joke. I've never met this guy. I just keep hearing about him. So I told, then I left there. It was my first day across the street. And um, I said to Harry, do you know the people at Archery Summit? I Harry Peterson hearing, Edry. Yeah, Harry yeah. Peterson Edry. I, I was like, do you know this guy, Sam? I keep hearing about him. And he was like, no, I don't. And then Harry and I went out to lunch at Tina's. And he, that and was we, when we Tina's, were lunch. Tina's was like Tina's the size of this room. And yeah. he said, oh, that's the Archery Summit crew over there. I was like, oh, okay, whatever. You know, m one of them must be Sam. I'm going to call him <laughs> next week or so. And they all come filing out. And we were being sort of loud and obnoxious. I, we didn't, she's like, we she's didn't like who are those we obnoxious people so, over there? <laughs> so Harry yells out as they're passing um, by the door. And Harry's like, Sam! I'm like, oh, <laughs> God, what are you doing? And then Sam turns around and... That was it? That was it. We talked. Wow. We went on a date. Tina's, anyway. yeah. It's funny. <laughs> that was my story. That was more than you wanted to know. But and, and in answer to your question, how we all got together. <laughs> well, how I think when I met you was with the Howisons. Oh, yeah, they yeah. had dinner, they had and dinner. I think that's the first time the I met you, yeah, Sam. Yeah, yeah. So the owners of Veritas. So again, it's just it's an incestuous little community. But when we got together and to do this, we we didn't know one another well. Well, Deb came to our wedding. Yeah, Deb came yeah, to our wedding because you were you all were good friends with Harry, and right. Cheryl was working for right. Harry, and you couldn't come because of your back. Yeah. We got to remember. And David so my and Tina. boss Gary and. 
you know, Bill, to a certain extent, Deb, I mean, it was like oil and water. I mean, they, this was not a good relationship, to put it mildly. So I didn't know Bill and Deb really at all. But when we got together to do this, we were all going out to do our own little projects. You know, and... They were retiring on Francis Tannehill and Hatcher. Yeah, it's we going to be great. We were going to the traditional all Oregon winery. All 1,500 yeah. cases. Yeah. And Deb said, well, why don't we, there's a lot of good bulk wine on the market. Let's go source some, put together, help fund the project. Well, we ran in Sam and Cheryl doing the same thing. And so, well, Deb said, well, why don't we just throw in together and do this? And we actually, we're going to only make the first vintage of A to Z. Uh, together, split the proceeds, and then go do our own projects, and it uh, it took off. And we all looked at one another. You know, Christmas that first year, 2002, we went out to dinner at Red Hills and in Dundee, and said, "Morgan doesn't need another fifty-dollar bottle of wine." And that was in 2002. <laughs> we been but we'd all been making fifty-dollar bottles yeah, of wine, which is fairly ironic. Yeah. And said, "This is what we want to do," and so you know, we took what was going to be an ad hoc project and became partners and have been ever since. I think you know. It was it was that one one seller we can't say what it is. We were looking, we were competing to buy some bulk wine, and it was Bill and Deb and me. Right, Cheryl was working at the yeah. time. I think I had, I had a job. Yeah. Cheryl had a job. We I didn't have a job. <laughs> we were going to be the traditional small Oregon wineries, and and that's what we were going to do. And you know, we didn't have any money. You know, we didn't come from a long. Uh, we weren't, you know, none of us were the 18th generation in line in winemaking family. Nor had we. Was the internet internet bubble hadn't done anything at that point. So none of us came from, you know, a really wealthy background. So we were looking at a way to help fund our small businesses to, to try to get some revenue. And, and um, we hit upon this negotiant idea. And I, I remember we were tasting that Deb called up that night and said, you know, why don't we join forces? And I quickly said, well, I've got to check with Cheryl. Deb texted you? <laughs> no, there was no, no such thing. <laughs> they really said it to you at, 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 the, at, at the barrel. Yeah, yeah maybe. Yeah. But I had um, saved a little protected a little money for the children's college fund and so that's how we were going to buy the bulk wine and then when we joined forces we we were able to do it we had such different skills it worked out really well um, during that those first years Cheryl had three babies yeah. <laughs> did that two was houses my, that was and, my skill and <laughs> had, had another had a job for another year but but for Bill and Sam and me, especially in the beginning, it was intense. And so Sam and Cheryl were, were responsible primarily for the blend, but Sam had to source. He was a bulldog going around the whole state. He would contract for one acre properties because we needed more and more wine. It yeah. was unbelievable. And Bill had the business background, so was able to help us get funding and establish a business plan that made we thought made sense and well um, we had just planted yeah. our vineyard we had just planted too, our vineyard and, had a baby. Um, 
And I was still making wine at Shehalem. I guess we started the company before, we bottled before Theo was born. Yeah, yeah. it was yeah. 2000, what week? Bottled on August 13th, 13th the hottest yeah. day of the summer at Rob Stewart. Stewart's. Yeah. One thing I was going to say though about how we started that is that always drives me nuts is that you hear it, you know there's a subcurrent of, well if we had their money, you know, anybody could do what you did. We didn't have any money. We had no money. <laughs> we built this thing on nothing and uh, I want that in the historical um, record. Lesson, I mean, we built it on a little bit you borrowed know, money. Yeah, I never, like, I've never heard that but what I do remember from it was like oh well it's only you know you're just making $18 wine like we weren't right. making that so there was a little bit of that feeling in the beginning of like oh wow nobody's had this niche is that a good thing or is that a bad thing or how is that going to reflect on the Oregon wine industry but over time we just found out you know what it's a lot harder to make great under $20 Oregon Pinot Noir at the amount of wine. At the amount of time. At first we were like, oh, this is easy. And then you're like, well, actually, if you're going to have a sustainable business and you're trying to make under $20 Pinot Noir, that's a lot harder than, than we thought. And well, the also, first vintage was sort of easy. I mean, but things changed The first changed vintage rapidly. was, but pretty much we've become the entree to those more expensive well, Oregon Pinot Noirs. I make three, four hundred cases of a fifty-dollar bottle of wine. I can also make a nice dinner for six people, but to make a hundred and thirty thousand cases—I'm sorry, two hundred thousand cases of AZ Pinot Noir—is like running a four-star restaurant at four hundred covers a night and getting them all right. It's a completely different dimension in, in winemaking. And I remember when the first wines that we blended. I think it was the first Cascade Cuvée. You were out of town, but we were at the house at Pearl, and it was just pouring rain. Remember, it was just buckets of rain. And I remember that in our little, yeah. And, and we, had, we were making, I was making Hatcher at ERA, right. and I had tools. We needed a cylinder to blend in to get things right. And I said, well, all the stuff's up at ERA. So I gotta go unlock the gate. I gotta you know, find the lights in the middle of the night that's pouring in. Sam said, no, 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 no. He said, we can do this here. Remember how we did that? It was Big Daddy's Pleasure Measure. We did it for shot glass. <laughs> the shot glass that said Big Daddy's Pleasure Measure on the side. And had different ounces, and that's what we Different ounces, and we wines. did that. That was one of the best early wines we made. Boy, that one was great. <laughs> and it was made in a shot glass. You have to remember at that time, you know, Oregon wine there sales were. They were only shot glasses. They were only shot glasses. <laughs> we didn't have an iPhone. We had to trash really trash it. Carry the ashes in the coals. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all uphill. Oregon should go out and see our lap. <laughs> Oregon wines weren't selling all that well. I mean, they were selling okay. Um, but there were yeah. wineries with three vintage back, three vintages backed up into the uh, in the warehouse. We had just gone through 2001 vintage, which was. Um, huge, huge vintage. At Archery Summit, you know, we fermented, you know, in bathtubs, basically. I mean, it was way over expectation. Bathtubs at Archery oh, Summit? Yeah. <laughs> they were gold-plated. Um, <laughs> but, but our, you know, and, it, and the quality was just okay from 2001. And we had, a, we had there were some good vintages, but with, you know, the, the 97 was a tough vintage that people were still digesting. 98 was really low. 99 was pretty good, 2000 was good, 2001 was huge, but not great. So there were full sellers, full warehouses, and there was, there was a lot of wine that we could pick to make this Negociant deal work. 
and then the same thing in 2002, um, and then up to up to 2003. I mean, we had someone by this time we leased a, a small winery, which which was what Hidden Springs up in the original, original winery Hidden Springs. in Yamhill, and then it was Cuneo. It was Cuneo, and then we leased it. And, then and I vividly remember this during harvest, a grower coming up, and it started to rain, and and we had filled our small winery it was tiny, but he said, "Look, you can. I've, I've got 150 tons of Pinot Noir." And you can have it, just pay to pick it. I just don't want to see it go go to waste. And we couldn't, there was nothing we could do. We just didn't have any more room. And well, we were packed was at pretty, 70 we were packed, tons. We were totally packed at 70 tons. And, uh, <laughs> That's funny, And yeah. then later that year, early the next year, Sideways came out and it, and it really changed the Pinot Noir industry. And all of a sudden the bulk wine um, disappeared. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think Oregon sales grew 44% or something like that that year when we're used to, you know, 4% growth. And and that's to Deb's point, that's when we had to get in, we had to go downstream and go to vineyards and start buying grapes and find places to make one. We had yeah. really, yeah, well, really we changed. Yeah. And, and, you know, we went from, and then all of a sudden Pinot Noir, we were, we, we went from sort of, um, leading with our Pinot Gris sales in some way and 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 you know doing well with the Pinot Noir and all of a sudden that flip-flop Pinot Noir took off and we were then trying to chase things to catch up and ma maintain the momentum that was really happening at the time and it was just this, this really tremendous confluence of ideas and times and and having an, a really inexpensive um, high quality wine that was a real value and, and that really, we were doing fine, but um, that really launched us. I remember Bill writing those business plans and the first business plan was, you know, okay, well, what happens if we get to 20,000 cases? And I never want to be more than 40,000 cases. No, never, never. And like every year we're ripping up these new business plans. If we're ever to 100,000 cases. But crazy. To we're point, never going to buy Rexel. Never. You know, that's just like, you know, the jewel on the hill. Yeah. Well, to your yeah. point, I mean, we quickly got to the point, you know, I said, oh, it's harder to make great under $20 Pinot. The first vintage or so, there was a lot of wine out there and we had great wines to choose from. And you think back and so we got into it, but then there were these expectations that we were growing and there was more wine out there and we, oh shit, we need to keep making great wine. So all of a sudden we were like, what do we do? We make wine. So we shouldn't be buying, we can't be a negotiant. And so that's really the tables turned very quickly when we were like, oh, well we need to get vineyard contracts or we at least need to have, we didn't have bricks and mortar, we didn't have a winery yet. So, okay, this winery over here will make some wine for us, but we need to be there every day. We can't just depend on having people make good wine and we're buying it. We're we have to make sure... We wineries in 2005. And we worked with over 100 vineyards. Yeah. Well, I remember Deb yeah, was so driving... It, it became, oh. sorry, it wasn't easy when we had to do that. This no. was, you know, you want to make sure all of a sudden people expect us to over deliver in the bottle. So wait a second, what if there's only bad wine out there next year? We can't, how are we supposed to do that? So that quality control issue very quickly was, well, came to. an ongoing conversation was uh, how big can we get? Remember you and I were sitting out at Evergreen one day and you said, do you think we could do 20,000 and keep the quality and, and then we'll do our own projects? And I went, well, gee, I don't know. And then we got to, uh, I think that's, I think you that's again. our son. 
Why don't you turn it off? He doesn't know how to. <laughs> That's probably true. Well, it's, it's going to stop. Um, it's, it's Will calling up to tell him how to turn off his phone. <laughs> and then we said, well, you know, the, the question was, we wanted to stop once we knew that we couldn't, the quality would fall off. Mm -hmm. And we assumed, well, 20, and then we did okay with that, and it became 40. And just a year ago, we hired someone effectively as an assistant winemaker who had been winemaker for over a decade and had worked for two decades at a very large winery here in Oregon. And he came to us, took a pay cut, took a title cut, and he said, I have to see how you do this. He said winemakers, when they get together, say, because the, the principle is as you get bigger, the wine quality falls off. There's just, there's that. He said, but everyone sees you keep making better and better wine. We could have never fathomed that we could make 200,000 cases of, of Pinot. We make 350 total of other things, but of just one varietal. We could have never fathomed that we could have gotten better at this as we went along. And now we look and we will, what is the limit? You know, why, why wouldn't we always be able to get better? We learn more and now we can, you know, now we can invest in some equipment. Well, I mean, you, know, you have to remember back in, when we were first getting going, 2002, 2003, you know, Deb was driving around in her car with that little foldable, collapsible um, pallet. What are those in the, the, the hand dolly? Hand truck, the dolly, like delivering wines up in Portland out of the back of her car. And, and we had a little office that used to be Alice's. Yeah. Um, restaurant. restaurant in Dundee and we had you know we rented that place and had what four computers we owned four computers and a printer I think you guys and were in the annex and it was a closet it was a closet it was an air-conditioned closet um, and you know so it was it but I think part of a part of how we got to where we are now is we've never really said no we, we you know we can't do it. It doesn't really enter into our vocabulary. It's more how can we do it? And if we find that eventually there's there's something that's no, insurmountable. Right. Yeah, I know. <laughs> something that's insurmountable. We we you know we, it's you know we're, we're constantly pushing on what can we do as opposed yeah. to what can't we do. That's a key element. I think it's a real key. It's it's in our DNA. Yeah, our bank is banks of 400, 500 wine companies. And they said this is the best company culture of any of them. And last year we were ranked number two among small businesses in, in Oregon. But a keystone of the culture here is go make a mistake. You know, you know try not to do it with not too many. 100,000 <laughs> gallons of wine, but try stuff. See what happens. You know, and. Uh, and so we've tried to, we've done it ourselves in saying that we don't say no to things or we say we can't do things, but we've tried to instill that with the other 50 people who work here too. Yeah, it's not just in winemaking, it's in yeah. marketing or, or yeah. anything that we do. It's not just that there isn't anything that can't be done or, or figuring out how to do it. It's, it's how to be better. It's striving toward excellence 
and my personal goal was never to be the biggest it was to be the best but they go hand in hand however the questioning isn't just how can we do that it's also should we do that how much is enough how big should we get should we get smaller we've always challenged one another with the hard questions and haven't been afraid to look at any possibility I think that's part of our liberal arts background we have a lot of people with liberal arts background in, in our management and that helps to look at possibilities and cons consider before you move ahead but also the willingness to make a mistake I think that has been important too when we we made that first cuvee we still only make one cuvee for each of our five wines that's quite a trick when you're this size I don't think many companies much smaller than us care so much about the integrity of every bottle being identical but we do um, but that first cuvee was 2,600 cases that look like a mountain over there. I'm looking at Bill, business guy. I'm looking at Cheryl, still has a job, pregnant, ready to, ready to have her first child. Looking at Sam Winemaker and I'm going, great idea, Deb. You're going to have to go sell that. I immediately multiplied by 12. How many bottles do I have to go out and hawk? But uh, that wine was named Best American Pinot Noir Under $20 by Food & Wine Magazine. The joke is, there wasn't another quality Pinot Noir under $20 in the world. <laughs> That's a true thing. After Sideways, and you, you skip ahead four years to 2006, Food & Wine gave us that nod again, Best American Pinot Noir under $20. But that year, I think we made 51,000 cases of Pinot Noir. And that was a real testament to our concept that you can, bigger can be better. That the more, when you have a tiny cuvee and you, you put one drop of whatever in there, it makes a difference. When you have a larger cuvee, you have nuances you can get from different, different uh, wines that you've made, trying to express each vineyard and you put it together with that skill that, that Sam and Cheryl brought, as you heard from all over the world, it's remarkable the complexity, the depth that is uh, possible. But in the United States, I think we've bamboozled customers into believing that, like in Burgundy, where they had hundreds and hundreds of years to distinguish and define which vineyards are supreme year in, year out. I think we've apotheosized single vineyards here as well and think that we should charge the most for them. I know it's um, heresy, but I really believe that we should charge the most for the blends because it's the most difficult, in my view, not a winemaker, to make, but it also brings the greatest complexity, in my view. So that's up, up, upending paradigms, and part of the way you can get there is challenging, questioning everything all the time, pushing each other to to be the best. Well, I think where we really learned about blending and complexity was with Jack. Oh, Jack. <laughs> Jack Irvine? No, yeah. that's why now we made. Yeah, yeah. No, that's how we learned about innovation and pushing boundaries. <laughs> no, but I, this wine that Sam made blended all kinds of white wines. Together. It was three. No, Bill. <laughs> no, it wasn't true. It wasn't about the blend. Cheryl, so we were tasting up in a little winery and 
And Cheryl, we'd go around and taste, and Cheryl said, well, what's that? I oh, no, you know, I taste that. And we'd go around. Finally, one day she said, Goodness. I want to taste this. And she tasted it and goes, what the hell is in here? It seems like, oh, Shannon Blanc and yeah, Shark. That wasn't the point oh, at all. Know. That okay. wasn't the okay. point. My stories so don't have to match. My story's better. There, there. <laughs> and she, she looked at and she said, you're such a jackass. <laughs> <laughs> So it became, we sold it under Jack with a little donkey on the label. So, so the wine was the real story. Okay. The jack, That's a better the one. The jackass like thing is, is true, but um, Cheryl and I, our, our best friend was Jimmy Brooks. And so, yeah, I'm sure you've document, well documented this. He passed away in 2004. And uh, we'd actually, that night, you know, the night before he passed away, we had a dinner at Tina's, a small dinner a group of us. And, you know, I don't know how many people were there, eight maybe? Or Pip was her first, and so Cheryl had gone to get our intern uh, for the 2004 harvest up in the up in um, the airport, and I, Jimmy and I drove to the dinner together that night, and we were talking about um, uh, Georgian wines because I think he had just been in Georgia and, and the skin contact orange wines, and we'd been sort of tasting those or talking about them for a year, year and a half, and. Um, so anyway, we, we had that dinner, and of course, the next morning we woke up. We were actually, we had bought cows together, Jimmy and Cheryl and I, and we were unloading some cows that next morning at Bill and Deb's house. There's a great story of Bill chasing the cows after they broke, broke out in his Italian loafers in a bathroom down, down Archery Summit Road. <laughs> the, the cow project was relatively short-lived. But, um, <laughs> um, Bill calls you it's about six in the morning. How do you get the cows back? And you said, oh, just beat them. A bucket. So no, Bill goes out. Rain, he, no he, he goes rain. out and he's beating on the bucket of his loafers. Pretty soon they're following so. him, and Bill's thinking, "I have about a million tons of meat following <laughs> me with big horns." And he's thinking, "What are they going to do when I find out the bucket's empty?" <laughs> give me your, give me your loafers. Oh, uh, so anyway, we, we woke up the next morning. We were and uh, and putting the cows into their pen and you know we got the because Jimmy was supposed to meet us there and so we got and help us we kept calling him anyway we got the news and so we decided that harvest that we'd make um, well, I decided by myself yes that we <laughs> that's the story contact wine and it was Pinot Gris uh, Chardonnay and Pinot Blanc mm -hmm. and it fermented it like a red and then aged it on the skins for until Easter morning when we took it out of the barrel and pressed it um, but Cheryl did say he's you jackass when she saw it but it was also uh, you know, Jimmy was a pretty stubborn guy, so it was also sort was of a donkey. Um, was a little bit yeah. of a representation of him on the label. If you look really closely at the label, the 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 donkey on the label is wearing um, uh, gum boots. You know, uh, oh, that's rubber fine. boots. Yeah. So you have to give me a break. I was like, I had a two-year-old. I was pregnant. Yeah. We were making all Jimmy's wines there, and not all, but a good chunk. A, a big chunk of them there. Yeah, yeah. We had the winery like filled to eleven. And was that the year you threw the mug at my head? I think so. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was like, we really don't need to take on anything else. Like, and we were starting A to Z, so it's like keep the, everything. This was two thousand four vintage. Two thousand four. Thirty-eight cases of it, and we—I think we finally sold out. <laughs> Last week, I think it was the first orange wine out of Oregon. Yeah, sure. I know it was the first orange. Wine. So we did that for 2004, 2005. That didn't do that, but they it, might it, have other questions. But I know I, I have one. Yeah. Well, what we're you know Jimmy, Jimmy and Cheryl and I and Bill and Deb, you know, we used to walk that property because he was that was right next to the. 
Hidden Springs Vineyard that he was sourcing all his yeah. fruit from. And we used to talk about splitting that winery and growing it out and whatnot. And interestingly enough, when we left, Janie ended up leasing that same building for Brooks and sort of... And then buying that vineyard. Yeah, where the new where Brooks is now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, Small the weekend world. before he taught Hadley how to change a tire, flat yeah. tire. So funny. Yeah. You know what's funny is we keep talking about Pinot Noir and talking about the Willamette Valley, whereas really our story is Oregon. Oregon. Yeah. I mean, that's how we are different than most well, people. We have all these white. Well, there's a lot more we, reasons we're different we're than most different. people. But, but no, but. I just find That's it interesting. We haven't talked about Oregon. We were we're talking well, about the, the origins, <laughs> and that, that was one. And well, our know, origins were a whole yeah, 100%. Origins to, are. Yeah, to jump, you know, jump off on that. I just got back from. I was down in Medford last night, and the Rogue, and and whatnot. And we're probably, and I say this with no without a huge amount of ego involved, but we're probably, <laughs> we're certainly number one, the, the largest purchaser of, of grapes down in, in Southern Oregon, and probably yeah. the real um, impetus, or what, what would, you know, we, we spearheaded that region, we started buying grapes down there in 2001, and I think probably of any other region in Oregon, the past couple of years, you've seen more development in that region, even more than the Willamette Valley. You know, yeah, there's hundreds absolutely. of acres going in, in the Umpqua and the Applegate and the Rogue. The Illinois Valley really do to us and that's been a really interesting journey and I think you know to tell if, if we were to have hours to tell those stories it's the story of of all of our well who we call partners but all of our growers and and the growth of their vineyards you know Don and Trouty Moore and Rob Wallace at Del Rio and and you know the the new folks that are coming up from either um, different industries like Hal Westbrook at Blue Heron Vineyard who comes from a, a lumber background is now probably one of the, the largest contiguous vineyards in Oregon over 600 plus acres or folks that are coming up from California um, who are helping re reinvigorate um, certainly the wine Eastern Oregon farmers Eastern Oregon farmers that are converting to grapes or you know you have um, and the other thing that's that's really fantastic to see over the years is those counties um, are really hurt. They were hurting, and they still are, because of the the decrease in lumber sales. And there was lots of unemployment and lots of stagnation. And you see those economies now shifting from um, lumber-based economies to more vineyard-based economies, and it's really great. It's putting people to work. It's getting tourists to come in. It's getting money to flow into those economies again, and it's 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 really um, and marijuana. Well, cannabis. Yeah, but that's a whole other. Yeah, um, but it, it's, sounds it's being too humble. On our behalf, he was seminal in the development of of grape growing down there, and was committed from the get-go in 2003 to having all of the vineyards try to be certified sustainable within three years of working with us. We always provided a viticulturist for that. And, and money. And money. We held seminars to teach the paperwork. We have paid for some vineyards to be who were compliant to be certified. And today we have two viticulturists on our staff um, who, to work with all these vineyards. But it, really, Sam's efforts down there, he was a champion early on. He saw the potential. He's worked with them. He's spent so many hours there. I really honestly believe that A to Z, because of Sam primarily, has made a difference in viticulture in Oregon. 
Well, thank you, Deb. But it's been it's been really um, it's been great to see the growth down there. It's really it's really humbling and really cool. It's really cool. And it's exciting in the gorge, and you're doing some yeah. of that same work there. <coughs> That's been exciting for us from our perspective, not in the industry, but documenting it to see how much the regions have changed over the years and in just the last 10 years, yeah. especially for Southern Oregon and out through the gorge, it's just been incredible and reviving those communities. Yeah. I mean, when, when you go down, when we first started going down there, there was Don and Trouty and Randy Gold, the forest, of course, and um, Del Rio was, you know, I think planted in 88, 89. So it was brand spanking new, mm -hmm. and and how you know those are they're thriving down there, which is really great. And it's interesting to see those changes here in the Willamette. Of course, you know you see more and more vineyards, but then you get on a plane and you fly. I grew up in San Francisco. You fly down to Napa and you drive through Napa and you think, wow. I mean, yeah. you think you know you think we're we're seeing changes or we're big or I mean, it, once again, it, it when you go to a place like Napa, it reminds you that we're still. Um, we're still small. I mean, we are still, uh, we may be mighty as an industry and on the world scene. I think Tom Donowski said, uh, this is a pretty cool um, uh, fact from the Oregon Wine Board that um, in 2015, Oregon captured 1% of the domestic wine sales, right? Not import wine sales, but all domestic wine sold in the United States, 1%. I think, I think if you include um, International or imports were it like point domestic. four or something like that, but I think if you include imports were like point four. But we we were twenty percent of all ninety plus point ones as an industry, which is like huh. amazing, That's right? I mean, it's really amazing. We make four million cases of wine here a year. California makes I don't know what three hundred million, um, and so it's uh, it's it's pretty. It's neat to see those changes. It's neat to see where we can go as well. And we talk about the pioneers and and, and folks early. And we talk. You know, we talk about like, we've been here forever now. It feels like, but but still, this this industry is only what fifty years ish old. Um, we still got to You know, there's a long way to go. There's a, there's a lot of the story that hasn't been told yet. You would have to be fifty for it to be fifty ish, almost fifty. Oh yeah, I'm right. almost fifty. <laughs> oh, Thanks, honey. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry, we. <laughs> well, I'd love to know. We we talked to Paul Hart a few weeks ago and did an interview with him and got his story on how uh, how you guys got. Uh, Can you play that for us? Yeah. <laughs> before we before we say. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is the trick question. Uh, this, this is like your deposition. <laughs> You're like, what did he say? <laughs> so we'd love to know from your perspective about finding out Rex Hill was available to be to be purchased and, and how you went about deciding and then how the transition took place. That was really Sam who... Uh, um, Me? Uh -oh. No. Sam, <laughs> Sam? We, we got to a point in 2006 where we were making wine at a large contract facility and that wasn't working out. Um, you know, they wanted too much control over what was happening and they didn't know what they were doing, so it was a bad cocktail. And we knew we had to finally own our own destiny. But, you know, the sensible thing to do from a business standpoint would have been to go out into a cornfield 
and put up a tilt-up building and just run things through. Well, it's hard to get investors for tilt-up buildings in cornfields. They want something that has some panache to it. And so Rex Hill was on the, on the market. I remember being out with two people who were on our board at the time at Higgins having lunch with Sam. And Sam brought it up and I said, that's crazy. I said, we can't make A to Z in a winery like that. And you know, one of the other guys said, yeah, it is crazy, but it might not be that crazy. And then I came back and started thinking about it from the investment standpoint, how we people, and I thought, well, we could keep the core of this Rex Hill and then build it out. And it wasn't ideal. I mean, just if you look at how these buildings are shoehorned in here, we'd spend 20, 25 million dollars on capital here. We would have spent 15 if we'd had a green site. It's, I mean, so it's not, uh, what? Do you, okay. you think more than that? I think we would have spent more than that in the long run oh, if maybe. we were the size that it's just the out. infrastructure of yeah. you know how hot, all yeah. the dirt we've had to move and things yeah, yeah, like yeah. that is what I'm saying but anyway it would have been easier and you know and Cheryl's the one I've been talking about how we built this thing because she's been the superintendent of it but the other thing we faced was there was just nothing else available we had to have a library so um, you know Paul was ready Paul and Jan were ready to retire and wanted to sell it. So um, as it turned out, Deb and I went over to their house for dinner one night and talked about their artwork and their garden and their grandkids. And then at about 10.45 at night, we were sitting at the table. Paul said, so do you want to buy the winery? And we said, yeah. And he said, well, here's what I want for it. And we went, okay. And that whole thing took, what, about 20 minutes? And uh, we drove back, uh, you know, drove back out to Dayton and we passed here and said, well, guess we own this now. <laughs> and uh, so that, uh, I mean, that was the, the purchase in a nutshell. But the best in all of it for me, um, and Amy would attest to it too, because Amy talks to Paul on a fairly regular basis where we um, still have some business uh, connections is that whenever you do something like this and, and you buy a winery that is, you know, at the time it was 20 years old, I mean, there are going to be things that go wrong. I mean, for instance, you know, the first month when uh, we, uh, well, when we were doing the due diligence for things, I looked and I said, boy, the utility costs are high here. And I thought, well, I'll just deal with that later. But it just seemed, just jumped out at me. And then the first month after we had signed the papers and whatnot, our water bill, it's January. So you're not using any water in January, you're not doing anything. Our water bill comes from the city of Newburgh, because we're on Newburgh water. And it's $10,400. What? <laughs> 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 And what had been happening, the reason the utilities were so high. We hydrate at AC. The water main had been leaking. Oh. And then it burst. And when it burst, we were just flooding for a month and so. And fortunately, the city of Newburgh was good about it. And we fixed it. And the next month, it was $224. Oh, and wow. 
But it's stuff like that. Things happened. And there was, as we worked together on, there were vineyard leases that changed. I mean, there were ongoing business issues that had to be dealt with. And we were always able to sit down and amicably share the cost of what happened. It wasn't pointing fingers at, so well you, you know, you did this. And what means very much to me is, it's like our culture means everything to me, is that 10 years later we have a warm relationship with Paul and Jan. And so often, you know, I remember, uh, um, did Paul say the same thing? When we finished Domain Druin, uh, we were walking through with uh, the uh, the two architects, Robert and I were walking through with Robert's book. Oh, this is just marvelous. He said, what do you do now? He said, in France. He said, we would have a big party. And one of the architects said, now this is when we start suing each other. <laughs> and it didn't happen. I mean, but in America, this is what happened. This was 30 years ago. So imagine what it's like now. And that, that never happened with us, that it was just, you always could work it out. So that Paul and Jan built this, they have their legacy. They didn't have to think of this in terms of, you know, they're able to think of it that it was carried on by people who cared about it and uh, who respected them and it's been a it's been well, you know a, a wonderful transition and uh, well the well. other part of the transition i think that um that may be missed in that was that we were here making wine they were somebody who we worked with yeah. for a few years prior to the transition yeah. so Actually, that harvest of 2006, we were all parked in the office with the winemakers there, and we had already had um, a working relationship with people. So it was harvest, and we were here, and we had an intern. We had somebody working for us. We're in and out and in the offices and saying hi in the tasting room. So there was already yeah. that relationship. And then when that came up, it was like, oh, Huh, bricks and mortar. Well, I guess we do need to transition. And this other relationship we had was sort of heading downhill, or wasn't just wasn't working. And heading downhill. That's a wasn't wasn't the right <laughs> wasn't the right match. And so we were here, and um, things were working well, and they continued to work better. And we could see how how it might be the right choice for us. And I feel like I spent a lot of time that that vintage 2006 on the phone with you, Bill. I remember walking through vineyards and we're like, well, if we put up a building, how much could we do? What could we do? And all of, you know, the iterations of does it work? You know, what do we know about the facility? What do we know about the site long term? What if we took an empty piece of land? Well, this is what's available to us, and would it work for a few years? And Paul was naturally transitioning out, and his, I don't think his kids were interested in the business, and, you know, so it was sort of this seamless, um, a seamless integration 
we thought. I mean, we learned a lot after January 1st, once we actually had the winery and January 1st hit and we, you know, looked at our bills and tried to figure out who was going to be in what office and who reports to whom and wow, wait, where's my desk going to be? I mean, there was a lot, but that transition of harvest, it seemed really easy. We're, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll do yeah. this. And yeah, A to Z was seven people because we did everything. We outsourced everything. And now we suddenly had 57 people. And plus yeah. tanks, plus vineyards. And, yeah. 50, plus, plus, and plus. 57 skews. And we're like, Deb, yeah. you have that handled, right? Is that okay? <laughs> you have your head around it. So I think it was obviously a huge transition, but it was a goal we right. got into it, you know, blind, which was beautiful because maybe we wouldn't have. Bill's, Bill <laughs> said with 57 people, we need to have HR. And he looks around, Char Charlotte, that will be you. To my uh, embarrassment, I didn't know what it meant, but I learned it means homeroom. I'm, I'm sent there a lot, but um, it, we uh, we did ha inherit a, a brand that was one of the legacy brands of Oregon, to be sure. But it kind of lost its way a bit. Paul had had a, a, a difficulty with his knee with operation somewhere around 2000, 2001. And after that, it seemed there was a little rudderless. And what we inherited, they had relinquished the Willamette Valley Appalachian for Oregon. I thought that was a mistake for one of the legacy wineries. I thought that should be all about place. So we reclaimed 100% Willamette Valley for Rex Hill Wines. They, oh, we bought about a 39 plus thousand case winery. All of those wines sold for more than A to Z. But we eliminated the white program immediately. We didn't think the quality was to our standards. And we reduced the size of Rex Hill down to 16,000 the first year and down to 8,000 the second year. So we reduced the size 77% of a winery we'd bought that was much bigger. It was a, um, a dangerous and probably foolish economic decision, but it was the right thing to do for the brand and for quality. We had, uh, there were about 29 SKUs listed in all of their materials and we felt focus would be a better idea so we reduced that down to six initially it's a little bit more than that now <clears throat> we had wine club members who had verticals of many years of certain of these many single vineyards and we said well we're going to do it differently. We're going to do it blind and by merit only and only have a few so that our Willamette Valley blend can be more complex. We're blenders. We believe in that. <coughs> we began to farm everything biodynamically using those principles. Michael Davies, our winemaker, and Sam and Cheryl and I had all been in the initial original biodynamic study group in Oregon. It was not popular then. It was looked at as sort of voodoo and people mocked us and put gnomes on our front porches, that kind of thing. But, but um, we began to farm that way. Sam was very committed to that idea from the get-go. So we made these big changes right from the get-go, but all for the quality of the brand and the legacy. And these 50 people who became our employees and were a little bit nervous about that upstart 
low cost, high quality, A to Z, taking over and oh my, what will happen to Rex Hill. We kept the brands completely separate for the first couple years and even to this day a lot of people don't recognize that although Rex Hill is less than 2% of what we do today, it is truly the creme de la creme. I don't know another property that could possibly have the selection of, of vineyards that we have. We have more Oregon winemaking experience than any other Oregon wine, any winery, other winery in the world. And so that, that pulling off uh, what we want to build from the top is a true commitment to quality and the legacy. Yeah, you said something that was very important about who we are and how we do things. And they said, well, maybe that wasn't the best financial decision. That's who we are. Well, Can you erase that on the tape? <laughs> we have not, He's the know, one with the MBA. <laughs> <laughs> But it, it's true, and, and we had a, a, a board of finance people, and six years ago, we ended up in World War VI, and they're not here anymore. And in fact, we control Sam, but we have three people on our board, and Sam and I are two of them. But what we were able to, you know, what we essentially went to war over was that we're going to make strategic decisions at A to Z. We're going to figure out what's the right strategy. It might cost us more for in the short run. It might not be the best financial decision in the short run, but in the long run, it's going to be the best thing to grow the company in, in a healthy way. And so with Rex Hill, short term, was that the best thing? Long term, it was far and away the best thing. But we're, we're a company that's about brand, and that's not typical. Um, we're, we're probably about the we're probably about the 50th largest or best-selling company and winery in the United States of domestic wineries today but we're not really about pushing boxes it's not we don't think that way we don't even call our wine a product we call it wine it takes a whole year to make that and we do it with care and love so one of the important things for us is that we, we are a brand that represents the highest quality wine for the greatest sustainable value. But we have an equal second goal, which is to be, uh, to achieve that while we build a company that's a force for good. So we became the only certified B Corp winery in the world two years ago We've helped others since then and um, advised companies that aren't wineries to do that. But that the B Corp was the first certification that began to codify our principles that we tried to um, employ since we started the company, which is to model best practices and, and be a force for good. So we had to change the legal language in our documents that we're not a corporation, we're an LLC, but uh, many corporations, maybe all, I don't know, have legal language that says that they will make the most profit for shareholders. We don't have that language. Our language today is that we will take into account all of our stakeholders and that we will commit to um, 
trying to, to be a force for good in terms of the environment, the community, of course our own staff, and that will be economically sustainable. You can do all the good in the world for two years and you're out of business. That's not sustainable. So I think it's those two things. We're brand driven. That's not typical. And we value what we're building as a company as much as what we're doing with love with making the highest quality wine for the greatest sustainable value. And I think that if the four of us had been making rivets or sweaters, we would have still had those two goals. Yeah, that goes back to when you asked me the question about, so what was it about wine? I say all the time, if you gave me the choice between being the CEO of a wine company with a bad culture or a bolt company with a great culture, I'd rather have the bolt company. It's really nice to have a wine company with a great culture, but the culture is what yeah, really motivates me. I, I want to go back a little bit to the transition because it sounded a little bit easier than it actually was. That first year was 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 pretty tough. You know, we went from you know having three employees in a rented office and four computers and a printer and being really profitable and really successful and and going out to dinner going out to dinner and, and we went to san francisco it, it, it wasn't easy but but certainly um with the with the acquisition of rex hill it brought a whole new slate of challenges that that in some ways we we might not in some of the some ways, certainly we were certainly up to the challenges in some ways, but some were, were, were it was a it was quite the challenge for us. I you know I personally remember 2007. Cheryl was very pregnant um, with our third child, Stella, and um, you know trucks were rolling in, and then you know happened to coincide with a downturn um, in the housing market. Uh, and the skies opened up, and we had seven and a half inches of rain that harvest in the middle of you know middle of vintage. And I just remember sitting on a bin at two in the morning, and the rain's pouring down, and and just exhausted, and thinking, why did we do this? You know, just thinking it was the wrong decision. But we at that time, I don't know. I was out for a moment. I don't know if you. Uh, spoken about this, but we we hired someone, Amy Prozenjack, who's now our president, and she was able. Um, certainly not single-handedly, but to really fill those gaps where we fell short. And, and without the four of us, we certainly couldn't be where we are now. We couldn't have gotten at least to the place to buy, to acquire Rex Hill. But from that time on, without the five of us, um, it, it, I think, so, I, you know, I, I really think some of those obstacles would have been insurmountable with just the four of us, but with the addition of Amy, it, it really spurred us on to new heights and, and to, to really make that leap into, you know, a, a real company um, and a company which continues to grow not only in sales and production, but continues to grow in culture as well. It's funny not to have her in here. <laughs> yeah, there's no question. She built the systems for the company. She uh, has mentored people and uh, she's, she's been crucial to our success. She joined us two weeks after we bought Rexhill. Those years were tough. Those years, those years those took a lot of years off of me. I know it was the hardest thing I've ever done. If anybody said to me, would you start another company or turn one around? I'm too old to do either, but it would absolutely be start another company because it's your own vision. It takes time to re-envision something that is what you want it to be and what you 
believe in and think is the highest quality while maintaining its history. Um, it, my marriage didn't survive after 41 years. You know, this it was one of the hardest things I've ever done when personally, um, and I know for everybody in different ways, we doubled our distribution almost overnight. That ought to all be sorted out. There, there were so many things that were completely challenging. Re, redoing the packaging, rethinking how the size and positioning and um, I was on the road an awful lot. It was, it was, it was very difficult. When we first started the company we had two tanks of wine that a forklift could have hit and it would have been done at that point. Um, those years, you know, as Deb was saying, that 2008-2009, we sort of came out of it, I think in 2009, were probably, you know, every, we, Deb and Cheryl and I went to go hear Phil Knight speak the other day, um, and he was, you know, just released this book called Shoe Dog and, and was speaking up in Portland, and I was struck by, you know, this, this company's a $40 billion a year in sales company, but the parallels to some of the, the challenges that he had in, in bringing the company and the, the origins and whatnot, um, it really, those years, you know, were, were the most threatening to, not only to us as a partnership, but um, to the company. And, and every, you know, I think a lot of companies go through that and the test of the company is can they make it out of those um, years. And we were fortunate enough um, with the help of all five of us uh, to, to make it out of that patch and to, to, to be where we are today. I was talking to the CEO of Stumptown the other day and he said, 3% of all beverage companies make it to above 10 million in sales. Now those are really, really, really small odds. Um, mm -hmm. And so, and then it gets worse, you know, it gets smaller and smaller from, from that 10 million on up. And uh, I, I just feel gratitude and feel so privileged to have been a part of this, um, been a part of this uh, I think those, journey. Those difficult times lasted, they were different for all of us, right. but they lasted really through 2011. Yeah. Um, yeah. Time we had the sales force in place. It's pretty, pretty amazing when we look back and, you know, I, I during this conversation I kept thinking, well, what are those milestones or, or how did we know what we were doing? You know, and and I and I don't know. I'd have to really think about that. You know, were we were we going from one thing to one thing or, or whatnot? And I think to Deb said, you know, it's that chase of the excellence or the or the or the pursuit of our um, potential that that we've never and that culture of innovation and creativity we've never let go of that from case, you know, 2,500 case start to, you know, 375,000 case production last year. Um, and it's been, it's been quite a journey and, um, and a lot of bumps and bruises along the way too, but a lot of good things have come out of it as well. Well, and I think we all have different strengths on how we get from one milestone to the other. Some of us, I mean, the four of us and Amy included in that. Some of us are good at throwing the dart out and then other and saying we need to be there and other ones are good at trying to figure out how to fill in between where we are to that next um, you know line in the sand. So I think we all look at milestones different some with little more granular resolution and others with 
larger swaths. So yeah, I think that's one of those things you ask any one of us and you're gonna see a big difference in granularity and how we see what a milestone mm -hmm. Maybe what be. would be a way to say it is that our competitive drive is is internal. How can we all and as a company get better rather than as opposed to others out there, different people, different brands, different companies, we're driven to be the best within each of us and together. Yeah. And that takes a lot of yeah. work. That doesn't just happen. Yeah. yeah. I think it's a milestone. I just get up every day. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I, again, you just wait. <laughs> I even mean within our group, we see how milestones are. We see them differently. Definitely, that's yeah. been a great asset. That's yeah. been a huge asset. As long as you can hear one another, and that's not always easy. We, it, it, that well, we had to work on that. What? <laughs> so you get a question? Sorry, yeah. I, know. I don't buy green bananas anymore, Sam. Yeah, <laughs> we have a limited time. Leads really well into what are your goals for A to Z in the future, where do you think it's going? And then our last question is, where do you think Oregon's going? So it's easier for you to answer both those Excuse questions me. in one, however you want to answer No, I'm coughing. Oh. And we can do that in 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah. Like Sam says, waking up in the morning is a goal, right? No, I mean. <laughs> it's a milestone. It's a milestone. Why doesn't somebody well, else go first? In a global first, perspective, huh? one of the things is by becoming the biggest, although that wasn't the goal in Oregon, or the best-selling Oregon brand, whatever, you, however you mm -hmm. want to cut it, production or, or sales, our, our competitive set, our group, our colleagues, now become other people in the world, not necessarily Oregon. We're, what is it, some 80-some percent of Oregon wineries make less than 5,000 cases. You know, that's, we hope to model best practices and lead by example. We want to do good. But in terms of our business for A to Z, really we're, we're in a different subset now. So I hope that we inspire Oregonians, uh, Oregon wineries, but even more than that, businesses. And I hope that's around the world. The second winery to certify after us was an Argentinian one. So it gives us a, um, an opportunity to, to inspire others, not just wineries, not just Oregon wineries, not just Oregonians. And for me, that's exciting. I think it's hard to capture that question because it depends on the time. Had you asked me that three or four years ago, it was a different answer. You know, I grew up in California, grew up in the wine industry a little bit in California, working at wine stores. And for me, that a while ago, I wanted, you know, my feeling was to be the Robert Mondavi or the Mondavi Winery of Oregon in the heyday of Mondavi. You know, since had some issues because for me, Mondavi was the, you know, it was, it was California wine. That's you know. And, and I think my goal is infinitely more simple yet infinitely more complex as well now is I just want to be the best company that we can be um, and, and not, you know, 
there, there may be an end point, there may be a case quantity, it may be whatever, a tipping point where that, hap where that happens or it doesn't happen, but that's what drives me every day when I get up is, is, is what, how can we be the best company, no longer the best winery, how can we be the best company that we can be? And that for me extends out to everything we do, whether it's from farming a grape to putting wine in a bottle to selling wine to interacting with the community to working with our employees. Um, it's it's for me gone beyond the. Uh, it would be great to be. Uh, so anyway, more simple yet way more complex as well. And I couldn't say that any better. Yeah. I agree completely with that. Yeah, we're not. The rest of it takes care of itself. If you do that right, everything else happens the way it's supposed to. It's it's easy to cut corners and it's easy to to um, do the easiest option. Um, obviously. And, and that comes back to choosing finance over strategy. If you, you know, if you stay with your cultural values, your ethical values, strategic values, the money takes care of itself. But as soon as you start cutting corners and you start making, you make financial decisions, you, you're already you're starting to act out of fear. And that's going to limit what you're going to do. And if we, be, you know, if we chase our potential and become the best company that we can be, which you know, I think there is still lots of room for improvement, um, we will become iconic. We will become the Mandavi of, or it will become the A to Z of Oregon. <laughs> As for Oregon, I think Oregon's at a crossroads, and it has been many times in its short little little history uh, for Oregon wines. We have an almost unique opportunity for a young region to be considered world-class and uh, to consistently offer superior wines. We have uh, some special things about where we are and what we found to grow here that isn't always communicated equally around the world and in the country. And with so many players, many of whom came like I did with grapes in their eyes, but no real knowledge of what they were doing, we have the uh, danger of undercutting that. By, and we've had these big harvests in a row. And we have the risk of having Oregon wine just become another thing, another wine region. We're so different from California and Washington. And that story isn't communicated. So most of what I've done in crafting the story of A to Z and telling it around the world is about Oregon. It isn't about our company. It's about the grape varieties or it's about Oregon. And I think we still have the opportunity to capture that spot, but I think it's in danger. You know, I think more from now, speaking from a financial perspective, I think that the risk to the industry now is we have too many wineries. We had 200 wineries at the end of 2004, now we have 700. And people talk about the growth of the Oregon wine industry. It's the growth of wineries. It's not the growth of market that's keeping up with it. And you know, in your interviews, you may have already encountered this, but people who have, I'll use like, lack of a better word, iconic labels, marquee labels in the state um, will say that their sales are falling off because you know, it's a 3,000 case winery that has a great reputation, long history, 
and somebody builds a $20 million winery down the road, and you say, oh, this weekend, let's go see that new winery. Well, you go there and you buy one, you didn't buy it from here. There's not enough people coming in here. We do a very poor jobs in industry marketing, mm -hmm. but there aren't, the, the market's not growing fast enough. Over 40% of the wine produced in Oregon, sold in Oregon. And the pie is just, uh, yeah, there's just too many people, you know, trying to uh, carve up a pie that isn't getting, isn't getting sufficiently bigger. And I don't know what the answer to that is. Um, but it's, uh, it's a problem. Mm -hmm. I think the influx of some of the larger players can be a very good thing for Oregon, mm -hmm. but what I've noticed uh, in a number of instances is they're not as collaborative as our, our industry has been historically, and that's a very unusual thing for uh, for the history of winemaking in the world. We that collaboration has served us very well, and so that part makes me sad to see that you no, know, they're they're all going to go their own way and and whatever. I I'm not a fan of that. I think it's remarkable that Oregon has probably uniquely collaborated across industry so that wine, beer, and spirits are working together with the Oregon Craft Beverage Council. And that I don't know anywhere else where you get those three entities collaborating. So my hope is with the bigger players that if they will um, work together at all, I think it will help us accelerate the, the uh, security and the and the growth of the column of Oregon wines so that no one can have a list anywhere in a, in a good restaurant in the world without representing Oregon wines too their their resources should help that effort mm -hmm. but it's nice when they're a little bit more well, what militates against that is that they're corporate cultures so, um, corporate cultures are corporate cultures any last thoughts from Sam and Cheryl? Well, I'm, I'm going to be sort of the naysayer. I think we've got glory days ahead for the Oregon wine industry. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, so we, ADZ founded a group called the Oregon Food and Beverage Leadership Council that we gathered together some of the, the who we considered the top brand names of branded food and beverage in Oregon, you know, Stumptown, um, Tillamook, Dave's Killer Bread, Bob's Red Mill, Full Sail. I mean, the list goes on. And I think what we're seeing is, to Deb's point, is this cross-industry collaboration that I think is tremendous. If you look at the jobs in Oregon, there are more people employed in the alcohol industry here in Oregon um, in the production of alcohol industry than there are in the software industry here in Oregon. You know, we talk about the tech sector. Let's start focusing on the alcohol sector. If you look at food and beverage jobs, we had food and beverage job growth in Oregon during the recession. All, in, all of the industries went down. We were the only state in the United States to have growth in the food and beverage sector during the recession. All other states were flat or down. So we've got this, this amazing culture going on in Oregon that really crosses over these different lines. We're still small enough that we can join hands across these industries. So the future is ahead of us. What, to, to Bill's point perhaps, is we need to figure out how we grab that and how we, and to Deb's point, how we tell that story to the rest of the world. Because I can guarantee you there are other wine regions out there, there are other states that want to take away Oregon's advantage. You know, Oregon has had a 
tremendously long history of diversified, higher quality agricultural food and beverage. And, but the way that has looked has changed dramatically in the past 20 years. And wine is part of that, a big chunk of it, but, but still only a part. So if we, can, if we can continue these collaborations, join hands across industry, work with state government, and be able to solidify our, our leadership, not only in the United States, but really in the world, um, we've got, I, I think there's tremendous, tremendous opportunity ahead of us, um, and I'm excited for it. It really, though, once again, to Deb's point, we are at a pivot point, and we need to press on the gas, and we need to accelerate it, and we need to figure out what makes Oregon so special and be able to figure out the best way to tell that story. Mm -hmm. And if we fail in doing that, we're going to become another, just another wine region. You just heard why he's known as Senator Sammer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but software wages are sustainable. I mean, yeah, you, uh, you, know, you can sustain a family and... You know, no, 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 no. So, wine production... If you look at the wages. numbers, Bill, they're, they're absolutely median wages in, really? in Oregon. Yeah. yeah, absolutely median wages in the food and beverage industry yeah. in, in Oregon. So they're, they're great jobs. They're growing. They revitalize rural areas. They keep the whole state healthy, not just urban areas. And, and that's where the wine, you know, it takes one person to farm 10 acres um, in, in a vineyard. You get, and one job in a rural county is equal to something like 125 jobs in an urban county. So if we can keep planting vineyards, keep employing people, those rural counties are going to prosper and they're going to survive. And that they're a really important part of Oregon. They're an important part of our business, for sure. And you have well, to develop the market to sell, make the wine, to, to sell the yeah, wine. But back to your point, Bill, well, if, if I only see it, you know, you said very similar things to what I was going to say, which is, back well, to your point, yeah, <laughs> if um, we're selling 40% of our wines in state, I just see that as opportunity. I mean, there's tons of opportunity for Oregon right now, and with bigger companies coming in, yes, we have the downside, but it's something we haven't seen before. And again, I think it's opportunity for us to lift our game and market Oregon in a better way. People are more organized. And as it um, relates to A to Z, we're not on a big growth curve right now. I mean, we're in a good place. We're just going deeper and better. And I think it bodes well for where we are in the industry with new people coming in and new alliances and a little bit of a refreshed pool of people. And I think that's all good stuff. It's t there's tons of opportunity out there. Stuff that we haven't even touched on in the years that we've been in business. I mean, just a little bit. And I think with these partnerships you've been working on and forging in food and beverage, I think it's only getting better in those. We do have one big challenge coming up, and that's global warming. You know, I, I think in the short term that's going yeah, that's going to be a boom for the wine industry here. Um, but in the long term, it's gonna it's gonna it, we will not only have to face some serious adaptation here because we're of a lot of most of the food and beverage we're really climate 
dependent, you know, from food and beverage in Oregon. Um, but it's also it's also instigating, you know, climate change migration with folks coming up into Oregon. You know, what's the landscape going to look like when something like 70% of our private lands are going to change hands, private ag lands are going to change hands over the next 20 years? What does that look like 20 years from now? What do we look like 50 years from now? And we got to get our we Oregon's so small. We we're not going to be able to do anything really to affect global climate change. So what we need to look at is how do we influence other areas to do things or how do we find ways to adapt to a future that is not only coming, it's here. You know, we're, we're a week earlier than last year. Last year was the warmest year we're going to this weekend and it's going to be what tomorrow, 95, 98 degrees. I mean, it's going to blow away the record that was in 2003, which was a which was a hot year here. But it's also going to be 70, 70 by next Wednesday. But we're a week ahead of where we were last yeah. year, which was the earliest year. Which is huge. You know, I mean, it's well, when you have California picking in the end of July. You know, it's just that's, that's not. Craziness. And one out of every four California wines getting uh, alcohol taken out mechanically. You know, that's just not sustainable. And it's not just temperature, it's water. There will yeah. probably be wars over water. Yeah. And so, you know, Oregon sits, we're, we're, we're sitting well right now, but it's ever present in my mind about the environment. Yeah, that's going to be the biggest challenge that our industry will face. You know, forget about markets, forget about whatever. That's going to be, that'll, that'll be the biggest challenge I think that we'll face. Water. Just climate change and water. Right. Because we don't use a lot of water. Wineries can recycle, vineyards can be farmed without water, but water will drive people to come into Oregon. Yeah, that's what I meant. That's what, yeah. yeah. Well, I know we've reached our time with you and then some, so thank you guys so much. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.